let us not let the art world homogenize us when we all individually as young people might have chosen to become artists. I mean, everybody has a different reason, but I chose to become an artist to try to pursue a life of true kind of questioning and subversion and an alternative position to what I saw as a common drive towards kind of capitalist values of growth and progression. And I wanted just to continually have an access to watching and observing and questioning that. I'm on the sidewalk facing Queen's Park, one of downtown Toronto's busiest thoroughfares. And I'm standing in front of a giant tilted white vase with human legs installed in front of the Gardner Museum. The vase is shattered into 220 unique porcelain shards, but it's been repaired with a gold inlay technique known as kitsugi which honors the history of an object's repairs rather than treating them as something to disguise. The legs, made of bronze, glisten in the sun, while a vintage Canadian pattern titled Cracked Wheat is emblazoned on the front and gives the work its name. This sculpture is by Canadian artist Sherry Boyle, and it was installed last year. Boyle works across diverse media, including sculpture, drawing and installation. She's known for her fantastical explorations of the figure and was recently featured in the British publication Vitamin C, Clay and Ceramic in Contemporary Art. Though she might be best known internationally for representing Canada at the 2013 Venice Biennale, which is the world's longest running art biennial. As an artist, she's drawn to clay as an everyday material which enables her to reshape colonial social histories and animist mythologies with a distinctly feminist and politically charged language, all her own. When I visited her studio in the Dundas West neighborhood of Toronto, we talked about how her bold explorations in ceramic peel back the layers of social, economic, and other meanings baked into the history of the material itself. She's the focus in this, the second of a four-part series produced by Hyperallergic in conjunction with the Gardner Museum and its community art space, a platform for experimentation and socially engaged art. I'm Hrag Vartanyan, and this is the Art Movement's podcast from Hyperallergic. In this episode, we're building on the theme of the Gardner's community art space series, What We Long For. To understand the realities, conceptual underpinnings, and the aspirations of one prominent artist working with clay and ceramic. I started our conversation in her studio by asking her to describe her work for those who may not be familiar with it. Maybe an invention of a real personal allegory, kind of a symbolic language. There's narrative, there's There's reference, but there's a lot of idiosyncratic language that I myself have been developing since a child. So it's not always obvious what it means, but there's a lot of references that you'll identify. There's often always the core is some individual, some person, some body, some face, some animal or something that tells a story and hopefully kind of evokes something that resonates with the individual experience that may or may not relate to what I intended it to, but the point is to communicate. 
morality is such an interesting subject that is not spoken about in contemporary kind of capitalist, sophisticated cities. <laughs> Values is so interesting because, you know, our different religious faiths, depending on what your culture is, some people hold them close and have a set of rules that they live by. We also have law that kind of enforces a certain morality on us. But in the arts, we've uh, attempted to kind of shuck that off and be amoral, as a, in, you know, say in Canada, the colonial religion would have been Catholicism or Christianity that kind of gave us rules and morals to live by. You know, we've dropped that for good reasons, perhaps. Um, some people still live by those codes. So in art, where is morals? What is our responsibility? We ask that a lot right now when we're looking at social justice issues and issues around race and violence and environmental collapse. For me, it's something that I think about every day. So there is something small and intimate and earthbound in clay that feels right to me as a material and feels of a scale that's human. And it also feels like it can dissolve back into the earth and that feels really important. There's a, there's a moral and a value there. My next question got an unexpected answer, even if it seemed obvious. It's a quality I recognize in her own work. I was curious to know more about her earliest memories with ceramic and how they may have influenced her. Probably the bathroom, the toilet, <laughs> the sink, the everyday occurrence of brushing up against a material that was like stone or so vitrified against your skin that we never realize or think about. And it's ubiquitous. And in our lives, it's something that we work to forget, I think, about the manufacturing process and those bathroom kind of things that something like Kohler would be famous for is a marvel of technology. What I love about that answer, it's pretty unexpected, <laughs> but it also captures a little bit of, in your own work, the fact that materials for you often have a class consciousness, mm -hmm. and you're very much aware of using them in certain ways that are preordained or or expected. Now, I wasn't expecting you to say toilet, but at the same time, it feels very obvious that that would be your first experience. Well, I mean, it's really good to break people's assumptions of how one is supposed to carry on a conversation like this, and also to remember what we come into contact with every day and who's made it and how we're using it and how we forget about that. I remember seeing her exhibition in the Canadian Pavilion at the 2013 Venice Biennale. It was titled Music for Silence, and it featured porcelain sculptures placed on vintage turntables, black and white film, and there was a text by the artist that paid homage to, quote, all the artists who are not invited to show, whose work is not welcome here. There's also an aged mermaid-type creature nursing a baby in a grotto. And overall, it gave off a subaquatic vibe. I asked her about that experience and what it meant to represent the nation of Canada at the world's oldest art biennial. There's so many languages and so many cultural kind of stories that come into that one central space, and there's so many different interpretations. I don't have an idea of Canada as a nation, and I never felt anything towards representing the country in any way that didn't resonate with me. So when I came in, I actually just wanted to speak about such a stage to be put on, and who gets that stage, who doesn't 
get that stage? What kind of binds us together universally? What are the few experiences that bind us together universally? One of them that really interested me was solitude and the kind of dual nature of solitude where the silence of solitude is some of the most profound and important experiences a person can have, whether it's the solitude of being born or of dying. There's just so many primary experiences that we have to do alone. And it's very important and also a life of being an artist for me and many others so often alone. You're in your studio alone for many, many hours, much of your life, kind of self-reflecting and mining and deassembling and assembling yourself into this work. So the idea of solitude and silence is so important, almost it's a, like there's a sanctity to it. But on the other hand, there's a silencing in terms of being pushed out, not heard, and not allowed to speak. So I wanted to somehow talk about the duality of silence about voice. So the idea of music for silence, it took on ceramic as a kind of universal material, but I was also working in bronze, I was working in plaster. I wanted to work with the kind of primary materials that can be found in the earth. And I also made a film, a 16 millimeter film, and worked with the overhead projector. And those things I have long history with Super 8 films. In my early days, I made a lot of those. And I've been using the overhead projector for 20 years in a performative capacity. So all of those, I find mediums that are very... They bring people in, they're inviting mediums that people can identify with no matter what the culture is. They're not alienating mediums. I had hoped that people would have a kind of experience of self-reflection of where they stand in relation to those ideas. But my craft is very hand-based and it's narrative and it's figurative. And in terms of a paradigm, it doesn't always match whatever the trend is of the moment in the art world. <laughs> so... I'm not sure there's some people that really felt strongly identified and reflected in that, and other people didn't get it at all. I also asked her about the drawbacks of a material that can look pristine and flawless in the hands of a pro. Well, working for months on a piece and having it uh, completely destroyed in the kiln, <laughs> which just replicates the experience of life, right? We invest in things. There's so much risk, whether it's a relationship or a career or some kind of pursuit of any nature, any kind of risk. All of these things we kind of take for granted all the time that if we work hard enough, it's going to work out. It's just not true. It's a constantly reawakening yourself to the possibility of failure and asking again and again, like, can you stand back up and try once more? You know, can you reassemble and move on? So in that way, it replicates life and it keeps you kind of real. That's a big challenge. It's a, patience. So you didn't use ceramic or porcelain initially in your work. You started using Sculpty and these other materials that were a little more hobby-based. Mm -hmm. And then you sort of evolved into using porcelain and ceramic. Mm -hmm. What was your interest in the material initially? Mm -hmm. And did it come out of your sort of interest of the creating sort of immediate small objects? Or what was the first reason you felt that you needed to learn about this medium? I think I was always attracted to the alchemy and the nature of the earth-based materials, that it was from soil and that it had a connection to microorganisms and kind of dirt that we walk on. So that is not only class, that's just ancient humanity. So it's very universal and there's magic in that. So that has always been of interest to me to work with materials that have a kind of connection to the earth. 
The reason I was using Sculpey as a young artist, I came out of drawing and painting, very two-dimensional kind of imagination where I was creating worlds on a flat surface. When I wanted to make those worlds in the round, I had no training in sculpture at all, and that was the most accessible medium, a Sculpey. And to make something miniature was very intimate to me because I came into sculpture, honestly, at first because I wanted to make a kind of memorial object around grief and the death of someone that was close to me. And when you are remembering a person that you know that is gone, you think of their body. And if you were close to them intimately, this person was a partner of mine, you just have so much loss around their physical sense of self. And so what could be more amazing than trying to recreate it in form, in, in something soft and pliable? So Sculpey was just a really quick and easy way to do something small like that as a kind of symbol or a gesture of a ritual. I love that you mentioned magic, because I think that seems like an aspect of your work. I mean, I would use the word alchemical, even, where there's sort of a transformation that... Is that part of why ceramic appeals to you or porcelain? Because there is like a transformative element, right? You're turning this clay into something that's very precious, do you know? And in the same way... I just revealed to you right before our interview that the, my first experience with your work was in probably 1996-7 at a small Queen West gallery that neither of us can seem to remember the name of, who were very short-lived. But I remember in those small pencil drawings, about eight and a half by 11, they seemed to be a lot of figures that were transforming or inanimate objects that seem to be humanized or there was a sense of transformation. That seems to be at the basis of your work. Would you characterize it that way? Yeah, I would. I definitely have this ongoing kind of urge to try to get to the heart of collapsing the boundaries between states. So I have never felt a really clear boundary between being awake or being asleep, or being young or being old, or being male or being female, or these kind of binaries that we're so schooled in have never felt real to me, as well as animal or human or plant or animal, or the things that we really have these distinctions and categories from. Ceramics kind of mimics that in a way because it transforms through different states, but it's all one thing. It's just depending on temperature. It will be vitrified, it will be earth, it will be bisked, um, it might absorb water, it might repel it. It has a kind of chemistry to it, but that it's always rooted in the earth. Transformation is just attempting to talk about the false limitations that we put on our experience of, our very brief experience of being alive. So what do you want to transform in your fantasy of these transformations? What, where is the transformation and what is the spark that started that interest? I feel it's always been about communication. It's always been trying to break down other people's, what I am perceiving as other people's resistance to these notions of permeability. For instance, hierarchies around humans being at the top of the world kind of importance and power. And I know that there's a long legacy of that in kind of white Christianity. And that is a big force in European and kind of North American social culture. So, but I have never, I never even grew up really with a pet, but I've never ever had an idea that humans were more important than animals ever. I always have felt that like a worm or a bird was as important or perhaps actually, honestly, more important than humans. <laughs> I always had that feeling. So I'm just trying to break through 
through to people. And it can be difficult because there's a certain sincerity that's involved with these ideas that is emotional and it's raw. And there's, there's a kind of integrity in it that doesn't involve a lot of irony or, you know, something can be seen as unsophisticated when actually it's just very perceptive and open and it's unguarded. And that unguardedness is a difficult place that we do not operate in the gallery. The gallery is a very guarded place and it's a place where people often, too often, go to kind of self-congratulate in their realm of education and sophistication. And, you know, it's been a difficult path for me as an artist because I'm very interested in learning, constantly reading, constantly. I'm super curious. So when I talk about this stuff, I have to be very careful not to sound anti, um, anti-education or anti-sophistication that's not the point at all. It's just trying to find this kind of commonality in our common humanity and our connection to the earth, our connection to childhood, our connection to death and mortality, the things that make us really kind of alive as spirits in the world. And that is a really tricky place to be as a contemporary artist. Absolutely. I also discovered that both of us grew up working class here in Toronto, opposite ends of the city. You in Scarborough near the Bluffs, me in the opposite corner in northern Etobicoke and Rexdale. And one of the things that I think people who don't grow up in Toronto don't realize is how much class plays a role here in different ways, whether it's institutions or, you know, who feels welcome in certain spaces. And there's often a choreography in the city when it comes to whether it's communities and who has access and, you know, how transportation systems are built in the city and all these different sort of corridors that are created. And the thing about porcelain and ceramics for me is there's very much a class consciousness based in the material itself. You know, I mean, just the fact that it's collected in sort of the homes or even someone said the del- someone mentioned to me when I brought up the topic of ceramics was even the delicacy one had to have to handle and ensure if to fix them or to all these, you know, ensure there wasn't a chip or something. Exactly. It becomes a whole thing. It's almost like silver, right? Like, like you have to polish it constantly. There's this sort of care that needs to be given. I just want you to talk a little bit about that because, you know, I think many artists, many of us in the arts community have that experience of growing up in one kind of community and functioning now in different communities. They're often very different from the ones we grew up in. And materials often keep some of that memory for us. Yeah, that's really true and well said. And that is a very wide topic that there's so many interesting branches to pursue. But what I will say is that let us not let the art world homogenize us. When we all individually as young people might have chosen to become artists, I mean, everybody has a different reason, but I chose to become an artist to try to pursue a life of true kind of questioning and subversion and an alternative position to what I saw as a common drive towards kind of capitalist values of growth and progression. And I wanted just to continually have an access to watching and observing and questioning that. So that means difference, including all forms of difference, should be like at the heart of the art experience. But because of our relationship with class and money at the top, that can quickly become pared down and softened. The idea around class with ceramics is incredibly interesting and metaphoric because let's just consider terracotta versus porcelain. 
Mm-hmm. And when you were talking about those rarefied worlds of collecting porcelain, it's definitely, I mean, it came out of China and Japan and also Europe and French and, and France, sorry, and Germany in the 18th century, the kind of nobility that was involved with porcelain. It was all about the whiteness, right? And so we know those metaphors around whiteness and wealth and value and how that can be and seen. Purity. Yeah, purity. And so how we can kind of look at those very damaging and, and destructive and false kind of notions. But then on the other hand, as an artist and a material person that loves loves the kind of challenge of ceramics, I also have to celebrate porcelain because of its extraordinary capacity for transparency and letting light in and the vitriosity and the metaphor around fragility and strength. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful medium, but when people kind of hoard things and become really... Um, like dragony about it. <laughs> of course, it, it takes on a value that shouldn't be associated with it. And that does have to do a lot with the history of Toronto is interesting because this is an indigenous land. Canada is somewhere that has been colonized very violently and taken away from the local indigenous people that live here that are still very much present and very strong and very beautifully spoken and coming back into the forefront in the arts and in politics and all sorts of ways. But clay... If you look at terracotta, that's the people's clay. Uh, people often associate it with, you You know, you might think of a lot of South American terracotta works or, you know, through Greece or kind of Italy, places that are warm and hot is baked, baked earth is what terracotta translates as. And so you can also see that the value of the people's clay is a very affordable kind of object that you might pick up as a tchotchka or something just to kind of bring in your travels if you're of the class that travels. Whereas porcelain has this incredible value that has uh, originally also is very gendered. It's something that men made and male artisans kind of crafted and created and sold to nobility. So if you look at those two different trajectories, you can just see how class kind of plays out. In Toronto, and this city was colonized by British people that came in and originally, you know, tried to get farmers to come in to, you know, overtake the land agriculturally, which is the story of humanity. And what had happened historically is that many people that wanted to actually pursue cultural kind of education from that was coming in from Europe, they moved to the States. In the very early days, they kind of went there and developed universities and kind of big city pursuits, whereas many people that stayed here were in finances and trade and farming. So it comes out, I mean, that's the kind of story of rural Canada, is it comes out of people that were not, their main interest was not cultural, it was about making money and settling the land. So the kind of colonial settler things is still here, very, very deep. We're a banking culture in Toronto, but in that, we have a lot of insecurity around kind of class and validation. So you see sometimes objects like porcelain kind of symbolizing things like that. Well, you also mentioned, I mean, Toronto is a banking culture, but again, that already brings in class into that conversation mm-hmm. right there. You know, you brought up gender, which I'm really happy you did because the material itself now is strangely gendered in our culture. Why do you think it's become feminized? My earliest forays into porcelain were specifically to examine that 
because what I entered the field was through hobbyists and they were female kind of middle class white grandmothers that did ceramic hobby stuff in their basement. My first encounter with porcelain was in Seattle in Vivian Housel's World of Porcelain. And so I took a weekend course of slip casting and making figurines that were decorated and all these women would come around like retirees would come into the basement and, and just kind of gossip almost like an old quilting beast kind of session, you know, but a little bit. And so I would I was like fresh blood because I was so much younger than anybody and I was really interested in their material knowledge as people outside of the academy. So they had all sorts of innovations that were fantastic and as a, you know, coming from a house of kind of working class makers and innovators, I really could appreciate that backdoor um, way to get around materials. But I also thought here was a way for me to infiltrate a situation where I could have conversations that were outside of their normal day-to-day experience and I could kind of investigate what their relationship to femininity and kind of notions of romance and beauty as kind of elderly women. What was that to them in this culture of white, you know, in that time, American culture? What did that mean to them? And they hadn't really considered it so much because they'd been just raised on that. They weren't thinking about it. I was kind of asking them gently to think about it. And the way I would do that would be to kind of subvert and customize their figure molds in a way that that made them uncomfortable. Not in not not to like purposely confront them, but just to kind of gently ask them to question the norms, right? So it kind of came out of that and then a lot of research and investigation into how the culture, say, of porcelain in Europe, which was my first experience. I was really, um, I still am a fan of kind of 18th century Meisen figure groupings or really uh, Jochum Candler as a sculptor in the 1730s was one of my favorite artists of that period, making these extraordinarily beautiful figures that had so much life and vitality in them. But that was a very, as we were talking about, gendered pursuit with wealth that was completely male. And the price of the white gold, you know, was at such an insane level that it was a currency in itself. As the forms of, you know, the kind of recipes of porcelain became known throughout Europe and other houses kind of started springing up to create it, it became manufactured in a more common way and then it became mass produced. And it, before you know it, it went into this thing that we know now, which is tchotchkes in Walmart. And the people that do it now are women. So you're looking at class and value system that is gendered through value to disvalue or unvalued. It's been unvalued. And that has a parallel stream of the working people that are painting those things, making those things in the manufacturing warehouses, doing the hobbies in the basement. It's a feminine thing because of the value. It's what came first, you know? What is a chicken and it's very interesting. Societally, you can really trace those those things. And when my first series was uh, shown at the power plant in 2006, at the time here in Toronto, there were no other contemporary artists that were working in ceramics. It was completely kind of not done because of the division between craft and contemporary was so rigid. So what was the first reaction then? Because, you know, what were people open to it or was there still regimented ideas? I think that the reaction was real shock and surprise. And obviously there was a really, it was a big resonance because so many people you know, had an immediate association with the figurine as, you know, something that one of their female relatives would have had in a china cabinet somewhere. So then this is also, it's a very white history often, but I'm also super interested in just the idea of the figurative totem, which is like universal. But at the time here in Toronto, 
people did not expect to see this in kind of the premier contemporary art public space in the city, but it was incredibly popular because there was so many great metaphors and kind of stories and references that people could associate, but they were completely turned upside down. So it kind of had that really great push and pull between repulsion and attraction. (laughs) And if I remember that series, a lot of the images were headless figures. I mean, talk about repulsion. Some of those are are like legitimately disturbing. It almost looks like you've taken mice and wear and broken it apart and reassembled it at times. Yeah. And that was a pretty early thing that I was doing it. I started in 2002, working with those figure molds and just learning the craft independently before it was only 2006 before I showed them. So I was actually working with hobby molds from the vintage from the 60s and the 50s and the 70s through these kind of basement classes, but then taking them, customizing them. And then I had to learn all the steps along the way, the china painting, the kind of casting and assembling, firing, glazing, and specifically lace draping. The series was called Lace Drape Figures. They were just a series of about 12 or 15 figurines that were kind of assembled from molds, but then adapted to the ideas that I was trying to just propose or investigate. I think really out of the conversation of oppressive rage and energy that comes from growing up female, mm-hmm. <laughs> growing up female and having a kind of set of, of um, loud and silent expectations of value around beauty and around your body and around your worth just in terms straight up as a visual kind of romantic narrative, which is a fantasy. So I was taking fantasy objects that people have kind of invested so much fantasy uh, history into and turning them inside out. But I also at the same time was seduced by the beauty and never wanted to re-traumatize or kind of create something ugly. I wanted to use the beauty against the ideas. Is there a major project with ceramic or porcelain or clay that you'd like to complete that you haven't had the opportunity to yet? Technical challenges and material challenges in ceramics are legion. And so there's so many things that I've had ideas of, of like, oh, I would probably require like a massive car kiln for that or like technical like facilities or support that I don't have in my own studio. But that I will be going to EKWC in 2020 and be making some new work there that I'm really excited about that will have some support. But I don't have a specific project in mind. I just in I just installed my first public sculpture at the Gardner Museum museum last summer and that was a really it was a year of research and a year of production that was so full-time and so hardcore because it was so incredibly technically difficult to do what my idea was so there's there's always the possibilities to challenge yourself beyond what the material can really what it's made for. I think that there's been, I mean, in the kind of gothic way, I have fantasized about if there's some kind of funeral ritual that might include ceramics in my own death. And if there was, a like, for quite a long time, I was really invested in lace draping, which is taking an organic material and saturating it in liquid porcelain and then doing a really high firing and the organic material disappears and leaves the filigree of porcelain and I've done that with all sorts of uh, fabric and textiles and I wondered could you do it with a body could you do that in a funeral pyre with a really high fire porcelain if uh, a corpse could be (laughs) my own corpse say could be (laughs) you know so that might be somebody else's challenge but I I put it out there into the universe (laughs) I wanted to make sure 
to discuss her nine-foot-tall public artwork in front of the Gardner Museum on Queen's Park. Titled Cracked Wheat, it stands across from the Royal Ontario Museum, known as the ROM, which is renowned for its extensive archaeological collections. I wondered how she thought people walking by perceived her playful creation. Yeah, interesting. Um, I'm really interested in sentries and kind of gargoyles. I had one at the Venice Biennale Pavilion that was small, life-size. It was actually based uh, on a model of my niece, and she was up on an I-beam and may or may not have been seen, but it's kind of a talismanic character that guards a space. And in my mind kind of sets the tone of uh, entering that space. So there's something sacred about it, but there's also kind of an asking of the visitor to lay down their weapons at the door, really, you know? So this piece that I made for the Gardner Ceramic Museum, historically seen as maybe something not, uh, you have to be a specialist and you might be, you have to be interested in these histories, which are world histories. Clay and is the oldest synthetic material of humanity. Every single culture out there has an incredible relationship to clay. But in, say, a white culture of Toronto, kind of waspy collecting of porcelain, maybe people just associate it with this something that they're not interested in and it doesn't reflect them. It does. It reflects you. There's a history in every culture that... Um, many of which can be seen, incredible uh, examples of it in the museum. I wanted that sculpture outside to be inviting. I wanted it to be warm, and then I wanted it to be kind of amusing, almost like a mascot. (laughs) I guess the legs are also uh, childlike in a way. It's tilted forward in a kind of almost uh, like a hum- there's a humility to it but there's also humor it, there's a lot of references in that like there's Daffy or Donald Duck with a big like butt on the back <laughs> it's like it's kind of there's a voluptuous femininity to the form of the vase that has a direct contrast to Ian Kaneko's very masculine squat head so I was also kind of making a play about the female body and the male kind of head <laughs> and so there there's a triangulation with the front doors of the architecture where there's one on the right and one on the left I wanted the one on the left to be welcoming and amusing and charming but there's also a lot of history in there the more you um, want to dig into it or the greater knowledge you have around ceramic history, you might pick up some of those references. It's a vase that's been smashed to pieces. It's right across the road from the ROM, the Gardner Museum. So there's a lot of archaeological kind of pottery shard references there where when we dig back into any kind of early culture, we first look for its pottery, its vessels, right? And then we want to put them back together. There's a reference to kintsugi, which has been a popular technique over the years, which is an ancient Japanese technique of reassembling broken, precious pottery in order to to kind of celebrate its history and mark its brokenness as something to be revered and kind of honored. And by doing that, you're gilding the cracks. So I love, this is a beautiful metaphor for anybody, right? It's kind of about acknowledging your history and accepting it and also honoring it. So there's that as well, but it's broken and it's got a Canadian wheat pattern, which is kind of a ubiquitous 
pattern in Canada here in the 60s for kind of vernacular pottery. A very affordable pattern for regular families to buy, anybody could buy, like working class families. So that was very important to me to pick that pattern and have it as a decal on the front. But wheat is, you know, one of the, it's an agricultural source of human kind of stopping their, their foraging ways in the world, right? So it's a huge universal symbol. Toronto is a place of people coming from all over the world. Wheat is an identifiable thing, but Canada has kind of taken it on as a symbol. But this vase is broken and it does, as my own personal politics and many others will share, that the nation of Canada is a broken place. And many people might fight that idea, but if you go back to the history of this nation, it is founded on a violent colonial theft of land and a genocide of people and then an erasure of that history. That still, that painful reckoning is happening right now and it's not a part of our education in our schools or our general society. And I couldn't make a piece that was in front of a Canadian institution without somehow nodding Mm -hmm. to the fact that this nation has been broken and we are trying to reassemble and we need to somehow reassemble by really educating ourselves in the history and honoring and atoning for that history. I feel like every material has its own secrets that reveal themselves when you work with them after a while. Do you feel like you've discovered all the secrets in the material, in clay and porcelain and ceramic? And what are some of the secrets you feel like you may have discovered along the way? Oh yeah, I know it all now. <laughs> I don't think that clay can ever be known. That's what's so beautiful about it. It's such a mystery. The potential is endless. I think anybody that gets sucked into it, that's what they're there for. It's so complex and it's so profound, the possibilities. I'm such a, a rookie. I'm such an amateur. So much of what I do is self-taught and just it's just through experimentation. Some of the most amazing experiences I've had actually with clay have been through a Pai Pai Potter that I worked with two years ago, Maria Darcel, in what now is kind of known as Baja region in Mexico. I did a workshop with her and she has been mining, her and her family of generations of Pai Pai people have been mining the clay in her region, only the women, right from the earth and kind of processing it really simply just with water and kind of making their hand-built vessels for thousands of years and her generosity and teaching me that technique, which was really, you're just using a river stone and a wooden paddle to create an incredible vessel that is, the clay has got these magical properties that are so organic that it never breaks, it sticks to anything you can make. It's just phenomenal. And then traditionally, they're firing it in yucca, like kind of taking the yucca from the land, the dried uh, plants, and firing it in a heap and burying the dried, sun-dried ware in that mound overnight, letting it slowly smolder, and it comes out with these flecks of mica, this gold kind of in the red clay and smoke patterns, like you know, things like that. Are <laughs> You're just so humbled and awed by this ancient tradition that just remains so extraordinary and beautiful and how people have held and carried that tradition. I mean, those are wares that people would have preserved and cared for it over generations. It's kind of endless. Why do you think there's a renewed interest in ceramic and clay for contemporary artists? Maybe it has something to do with scale and maybe it has something to do with that connection to the earth. 
I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of chemistry that you can fool around with. So it takes gesture beautifully. You can really, if you want to do rough, kind of spontaneous work, it has this amazing capacity to kind of retain the form of your hand and the idea. It's almost like drawing. It's like probably the closest to drawing as you can get in a sculptural material. So there's that. But then there's also the possibility of refinement where you can go deep into learning and research. And I think a lot of people have loved the sloppy glazes like straight up like a big messy glaze pool can be a kind of wonderful thing that you can there's so much range in the material but I do notice that it's something people pick up and if you want to do an improvised spontaneous gesture it's awesome but then if you want to go further you kind of hit a wall it's like how much do I really want to dedicate myself to this because it takes so much time and patience and kind of facilities really so you're either going to start hiring fabric to make your stuff or if you yourself are going to do it you're going to turn down a road of possibly no return and I feel like I might have turned down that road <laughs> a special thanks to Sun Sun for providing the music for this episode I'm Harag Bartanyan the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic Thanks for listening to the second episode of this four-part series produced by Hyperallergic in conjunction with the Gardner Museum in Toronto and their community art space, a platform for experimentation, socially engaged art that inspires artists and the public to engage in social action. You can learn more at gardnermuseum.on.ca. Thanks again to Sherry Boyle for joining me on this episode and to all of you for listening. Seem like everyone just wants to be right And that all the lovers are out of sight Ain't no justice, just us And don't lose your light Let it shine brightest in the dark at night And in the dark at night